Hello, I'm Katie Jarvis. This week, Real Foot Forward is made possible by our friends at CrossFit Auto Body, located in Union City. CrossFit Auto Body is the perfect place to begin your fitness journey. Come in and become part of the CrossFit community. Visit uccrossfitautobody.com for more information. Welcome to Real Foot Forward from Discovery Park of America, located up here in the corner of beautiful West Tennessee. Every day at our museum and heritage park, we inspire children and adults to see beyond. And each week, we do the same thing here on our podcast. On this episode, Scott discusses the importance of the arts with Jason Stout, an associate professor of art at the University of Tennessee at Martin. He encourages young artists who want to build an audience to not dismiss those who do not understand art, but rather be the bridge that connects the art to the person. And later, join us as we discover something new here at Discovery Park of America. I'm Scott Williams. Welcome to Real Foot Forward, where every week we explore the culture, the spirit, the accomplishments, and the heritage of West Tennessee, just like we do every single day here at our museum and Heritage Park in Union City. Today's podcast episode is special for a number of reasons. Number one, it's the very first episode to include a conversation about ham. You'll find out more about that later. And number two, we have a very special guest, Jason Stout. And Jason goes by the name Stout, and everybody that I've mentioned he was coming, they would say, oh, you're going to love Stout. So let's uh, talk a bit with Jason, or Stout. Or Professor Stout. You haven't taken my class yet. That's a, that's a second year kind Professor of thing. Professor Stout. Right. Let's talk to there we go. Professor Stout. Okay, so tell me a little bit about what Stout is doing today. What is your job? What, what, what is your contribution to society? Okay, well, I'm an associate professor of art at the University of Tennessee at Martin, and I teach primarily uh, foundation courses, uh, which are like drawing one, uh, drawing two, color theory, 2D design. I'm teaching figure drawing and mixed media now because I, I've moved up, so I'm not the, the, the youngest professor out of a group of professors now, so I still do a lot of the foundation stuff, but I'm also doing some of the, the end kind of intermediate class stuff too, and I'm also the faculty advisor for the League of Striving Artists Student Art Group. And you guys have a pretty cool gallery space there. I saw we, it last time yeah, I was there. We moved into our new building in, I think it was 2013. Uh, and, and this building was our old building. And then as they went through and they started redoing, there's two phases of how they renovated the Fine Arts Building. And this was phase one. So we were in Gooch in classrooms over there for about five or six years while they were going through and doing the renovation. And I think we got in there right at around 2013. And part of that is an improved gallery space. Uh, we had a space before, but it was pretty much uh, kind of like a lobby space with uh, very dated kind of walls, carpeted walls, where you had to do all kinds of tricky things with installation. So it, it's a very modernized type of gallery. Uh, it, it's a very tall, open space that shows a little bit of the architecture of the building. Uh, it has natural light coming in. And so uh, with that space, we've been able to kind of attract and, and, and teach and really educate a new audience of people coming in there and experiencing the gallery for the first time. And it's a space big enough to hold uh, shows in an audience of some capacity. I thought before that uh, you know, you could get 50 to 75 people and it would feel really crowded, which was great for everybody's confidence, but it wasn't really a measure of how much we were impacting or engaging the community. And so now when we feel the space, like we just got done having the 
sixth annual Guitars Art Exhibition, which is a, a partnership exhibition with the City of Martin and the Soybean Festival. Uh, you know, we had 200 and, 270 to 300 people on the opening ceremony for Sunday for that, uh, which was great. And so when that space is filled at that capacity, you know that you're really kind of engaging your community and having a good show. So so obviously art has been very good to you. You're very successful. You were just teacher of the year or something I noticed. Yeah, UTAA, um, which is the uh, Alumni Association for Tennessee Outstanding Teacher of the Year. Yes. Congratulations Thank on you. that. Yeah. So, so let's backtrack to Little Stouts who was in his den, <laughs> you know, were you the little kid who was coloring and drawing and creating art when you were very young? Yeah, you know, uh, in the early 80s, probably when I was like five or six or seven or whatever, uh, art, even though you didn't take art specifically as a class that early, was uh, an integral teaching strategy used in a lot of the classrooms. So you were learning uh, projects and concepts of whatever field, but there was always an art-based slant to it. And so the teachers at that time were really, really involved with uh, integrating art to what they were teaching. And, and then by proxy, you were always doing art in, in some kind of way, whether you wanted to or not. And uh, it was one of those things to where uh, I, I don't really know how you measure early talent except for, you know, some kind of like uh, realism or aptitude for what the teacher's asking you to do and what you're able to do. And that, that is either so far or so behind what your peers are doing. And uh, I was just always a little bit ahead. And when you get the attention for that, or you get the nod, anybody at that age, you know, wants to feel, you know, kids like to feel special. Right. You know, my little boy asks me every day, he goes, am I special? Aww. And uh, I'm like, you know. <laughs> no. Most of the time. <laughs> most of the time you're special. <laughs> oh, just nice. not when you destroy that's our a good house. Answer. Yeah. Uh, but kids want to feel special. And they want, they want to feel like that they're, they're successful early on in some kind of part. And for me, that was the thing that got me the most attention. So naturally, as a kid, I responded to that. And as I responded to that kind of attention, uh, the aptitude for what I was able to do as a visual artist was kind of pushed and stretched. And so I could just kind of like already play without having any lessons or anything like that. I can just kind of play. What city, what city were you in? Where did you grow up? I grew up around here. I'm a West Tennessee kid. So believe it or not, I grew up in Martin. Okay. And I spent time like uh, in junior and high school, uh, staying summers in Louisiana with my biological dad. Uh, but the landscape of, uh, where I was at, which is Bogalusa, Louisiana, and Martin was very, very, very similar, uh, except for the difference between Louisiana was that there was no real middle class in the town that I was in. So, you know, for connecting art and culture and community culture and things like that, uh, I would say that, you know, uh, at that time, there wasn't a lot of art around. Uh, I've talked to a lot of older people and then students, too, when they were asking, like, you know, how did you do art in a rural West Tennessee town at that time? What did you have to look at? And there wasn't really a lot, and we weren't close enough or financially able to really get to places like, you know, Memphis is two hours away, and there was art there, obviously, at that time. But, you know, I grew up in a single-mother household with two kids, you know, when she was 22. So money and things were pretty tight. So it's not like, you know, let's take a day trip to Memphis to go to the Brooks or something like that. That's not feasible. So you're looking for certain visual things that just happen naturally around uh, around you in your environment that you respond to. And, you know, there were a couple of things. You know, there were uh, painted business murals. I remember, like, there was one on the corner where our cleaners used to be that was a big Coca-Cola mural that always had the UTM football schedule on it. And we would drive <laughs> by, and there's a stoplight there. Yeah. And I would just stare at it, and I can still complete it in my head. Uh, we were still a huh. big train community at that time. Trains still went through the towns all the time. And we had the Illinois Central, and it would kind of cut through Chicago and come here. So if you got stopped by a train, which sometimes back then was 20 or 30, I mean, you know, you're just sitting there, and that's, you know, that's life. 
But these trains had been parked in Chicago and had all sorts of like 80s, kind of like hip hop, graffiti and pictures. And I mean, they were like traveling museums. So even though you didn't have access to stuff like that, you had encounters with visual kind of phenomenon in your community and your environment that if you're somebody that's that's pressed or that wants to do that, you don't have to have access to everything, but the two or three things that you did have access to, you tend to eternalize that, and that still becomes part of your makeup. Like, I think both of those experiences are still part of my makeup today, so. I mean, it, and I could be wrong about this, so correct me. Okay. Mr. Teacher. Okay. Um, doctor, teacher, whatever. <laughs> um, professor. Sure. Um, so, so it feels like a lot of uh, parents who aren't in the arts, and even a lot of teachers perhaps, don't sort of understand the base things you learn in in arts you know when you learn the when you learn visual arts or when you you know there are things you're learning beyond just art so I think a lot of times it gets um, sort of uh, pushed back or pushed it down mm-hmm. and the funding gets cut most quickly and so a lot of kids who maybe are are incredibly talented don't discover that fact because they're not ever exposed to it sure. Uh, what I've said a lot of the time is it's not that in the in the southern kind of rural region where we live that art isn't appreciated. The problem with art and the audience that exists in the culture is that it's not practical. So when you're talking about, you know, regions and towns that are middle to lower class, the way you spend your time has to be somewhat practical, even as a kid. You know, if you're a kid, you come home from school, you're helping out your parents. If you're a teenager, you're doing this, you're, you're, you're working an after-school job, you're trying to find or do something practical. And so creativity, uh, you know, if we talk about art or music or anything else like that, uh, dance, uh, it's just, it, it is humor to the point to where when it's acceptable and it can be humored and there's time to humor it and accept it, that's fine. But for the most part, if uh, it doesn't have a practicality to it long-term, and that's when the culture kind of dismisses it because everybody is trying to get everybody onto doing the thing that's going to provide for their self or their family. And most people that are creative, they are creative in a way in which that's the last thing they're thinking about. They have to do it as natural as like breathing or talking or thinking or communicating. It's second nature. So uh, the contradiction of a practicality uh, with, with people that are in a culture that want to do this, that strive to do this, that have to do this, uh, whether it's practical or not, that's usually the conflict of how art kind of, uh, you know, becomes visual or not in the society or the place that it's trying to exist. And I, I think it's always in flux. Uh, part of what you have to do, too, is, you know, as a working artist, you, you have to build an audience. I mean, your audience building every time you're doing something, uh, especially where we're located. I mean, you can't just assume that you're going to have an audience, usually because, uh, the people in, the, in your region don't have an exposure to it. So there's a natural, I would say this is something that artists do wrong all the time, there's a natural dismissiveness towards people that aren't appreciative of the arts. They're like, oh, you don't like art, you don't understand art, you know, I, I dismiss you. You're not educated, you're not smarter, you're not cultured enough. Well, the problem is, is maybe that was the case, but that's not the fault of the person. You know, they might have had to work their whole life and didn't have any exposure to it or very little in school and have been working, you know, 12 hours a day since they were a kid and, you know, they're 30 or 40. And it's just not something they've been experienced to. So uh, this dismissiveness towards uh, a part of your culture that doesn't quite understand it or get it is not audience building. That's the worst thing you can do. 
what we should be doing, every creative person, is whatever you're doing or making or performing or playing is to try to invite somebody to it. Because in some kind of way, there's going to be an end, especially with how connected we are uh, with, with pop culture and the internet and things like that, that everyone has a connection to the arts in some form. And so what you really are in your community is you are a bridge between what little a person in your community knows and uh, the potential of what they can learn and enjoy through you. And if you're not doing a good job being that bridge, I mean, you're just really, it's never going to be easier for you because you're not creating an audience for yourself. So we have um, been working on an exhibit of um, art by Red Grooms, which, oh, yeah. I, which I think will help, you know, expose people to, you know, art can be funky and fun. And uh, have you seen some of his? Well, yeah, and Red Grooms is a Tennessean. Right. You know, I mean, Red Grooms, you know, it's a history in Tennessee and then went to New York and was uh, part of the avant-garde movement there, but then uh, started doing the work that he's known for now. And it's, I, I remember in, what was it, 2000, 2004, three, right when we moved back, had a you know huge show with the Frisk, kind of like it was a retrospective where they unveiled the carousel and he had part of the show at the T-Pack. And then uh, the reason why Red Grooms is so important is because you have to see somebody from the place that you're from do what you're wanting to do sometimes to believe in it. And when you walk into a show like that of Red Grooms' retrospective and his life work, and you see, like, this guy came from the same place I did, same kind of people, the same kind of experience that made it happen, you know in your head that there's not an excuse that it can happen for you too. And I think that's why Red Grooms is such an important artist. I mean, there's kind of a lineage between Red Grooms, then to the artist Wayne White, if you guys know who Wayne White is, uh, you know, that worked on Pee Wee's Playhouse, but still yeah. a contemporary artist and doing great things. You know, like Wayne talks about all the time how important Red Grooms is. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of my generation uh, know Red Grooms, but they also really know Wayne's work. And so it's like a lineage, like you like this guy and you find the guy that influenced him and it's kind of backtracking like you do anything you're into. So, uh it, it, it's a great exhibit to start off with. It, it's great for kids around here creatively in West Tennessee that want to, you know, pursue the visual arts to see that this is a guide that did it and has been as big as anybody in uh, contemporary pop art in the last 50 years. And I think I think about the kids who do come in here who will see that, who will have that idea. You know, I think about that all the time when we do like a Hot Wheels exhibit. And yeah. How many kids are going to get exposed to engineering and math and science in a new and different way? you know, and leave here changed. So, or adults too, you know. Well, so. you know, there's a, there's a, a somewhat contemporary, we're looking at postmodern kind of criticism towards that Red Grooms is artist to pop. And then it's simple that, but if you ever really, if you're an artist that makes things and you look at the construction, the design, how he puts his picture together, how they're popular in, in a way in which, you know, they approach things that everybody can walk up to. Anybody can walk up to a Red Grooms and get something out of it. But at the same time, there's almost a tongue-in-cheek cleverness to how he's presenting what, he, what he's popularizing at the same time uh, that's really smart and savvy. And, and it's very cross-generational, too. You know, it's they're historical in the fact that, you know, he does a lot of work about history. And so, like, the history of the abstract expressionist painters or the history of Elvis, you know, the Elvis prints that are 3D oh, yeah. that are so great. Yeah. Uh, you know, but he's doing it in a kind of, like, you know, a, a funky kind of way in which they're visually very exciting. But also, too, you know, he's putting you in a certain kind of narrative uh uh, positions to where, like, uh, the part of the history he's talking about is kind of thought about or known 
in a way in which you would tell the story or think about the story once you've read about it yourself. He's creating visuals from that. They're not always like from a direct photograph. And here's Red making a piece of artwork about this photograph of this time and place. He's assuming that you know a little bit of the story, the time and place, and his image or composition is based off of that. And you're paralleling your story into his. And that's what uh, creates a deeper connection with the work that I don't think you get until you see it in person. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah, it'll be fun having people get to come here and actually see it in person. Oh, yeah, cause, definitely. Because there's nothing like it. He's one of my favorites. Um, so what about do you all at UT Martin get involved with, you know, at a lower level teaching kids art? And, you know, do you all have clinics or anything like that that you work? Well, you know, part of our uh, degree program is we have a, an art education program, and it's one of our majors that you can get in a BFA degree. And with that, we do a lot of educational outreach to schools. You know, part of what uh, our student teachers have to do is they do it. They do a semester of student teaching, so they're going out to schools to fulfill part of their degree requirement. And there's kind of a lineage of systems and partnerships with teachers that have been teaching in surrounding high schools to where, you know, we're sending them uh, a student teacher, and then that student teacher, once they do their second placement in that semester, is then going to another teacher we've had a relationship with. And a lot of times, those teachers that they're TAing under are teachers that have come from our system. So it's kind of a continuation of our program. You know, we only became an independent program, uh, Department of Visual and Theater Arts, I think in 1990, I want to say 93, 94. So we're not a terribly old program, but we're old enough now to have a generation or two of people. So where it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's becoming cyclical with people that we graduated with early are now the people that are helping our students, especially in educational outreach, graduate now and finish their degrees. So uh, the other part is with our student art group, uh, we usually partner up with a high school or two or middle school every semester that doesn't have enough art or they have very little uh, or none. And we send uh, people that are art education majors and members from our organization there to do projects and uh, lesson plans with kids. And that's a way in which we kind of put a little UTM in some of these other school systems. And that has been tremendously successful. A lot of them have been continuing relationships where we do it every fall and spring with certain schools. And a lot of it just depends on how many people we have that are ready to do it too. So, I mean, I feel like there's um, – my wife and I both remarked about how many creative, talented people we've encountered here since we've moved here, and I think UTM is a big part of that. It's 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 spitting creative people out into the community, and I think nothing but good can come of that. Yeah, uh, although a lot of disorganization and you know creativity, <laughs> and you know, uh, my wife's been uh, doing art classes at the Boys and Girls Club, um, and that's been really. Um, is that here in Union City? Yeah, I didn't know there was a. Is that part of the boxing club? I heard there's a boxing club in Union City. There's a there's a I don't know about the boxing club, but I do know there's a. There's a wrestling club, not the. Is this all in the same place? So you can go wrestle and then maybe do, and and it's not painting. It's, it's not like with the, a twist. It's not like later. the Olympic style. Oh. You know, it's like, you know, wrestling like, like theatrical like wrestling. WWE like Ric Flair. Yeah, exactly. Like, there okay. you go. Woo, yeah. Like Jerry okay, Lawler. Yeah, it's that kind of wrestling they do here, which I've forgotten. I got to go to that. We we need to we need to have them on here on I our saw, podcast. So, but does the does the art class happen in the same place? No, is no, it? no. The art class happens oh. at the Boys and Girls Club. Isn't that oh. what it's called? The, yeah, I, I thought the wrestling might be. What no, a the shame. Boys and Girls Club they have like a whole a building and you know it's great after school program and and summer program, you know for kids. Um, and so uh, she's been doing a lot of stuff with them. Yeah. I was being really, serious with that. I mean that's not a stretch that you could have in a, a community center that has wrestling. Boxing. 
And then when wrestling, they pull the mat up, it's like, okay, it's painting with a twist or it's yeah. still after They do have a really cool gym. So they may be, they yeah. may be doing Yeah, wrestling. I mean, community spaces here, you know, that's kind of a... Uh, they have to they have to fulfill lots of different things. You know, we're we're in the process now of getting our new library in Martin. Uh, I don't think we're that far away. And so the big talk, there's two big talks about this. Like, okay, how close are we to getting the new library and all the great things that are going to come with that? But also, too, uh, we're also going to have the old library, which is a great historical building right in the heart of our downtown, that's going to also become a community center, historical museum. I mean, there's so many things that are being thrown at that. So uh, the transition from this one community space into another has now actually created two community spaces. And so I'm just as excited about what the old library is going to become as what the new library can do. So, Now, are you uh, working at all with um, Weekly County Arts Can? The, uh, a, a little bit on the outside. I, I'm not uh, – I am so busy with our student art group. I mean, we uh, – Caitlin and Carly, who work for you guys, I mean, they can attest to this. They were both officers of this, uh, you know, uh, working with me. And, you know, we do over like around 1,500 hours – of combined arts-related service every year. Wow. And usually before the year starts, I have loosely our whole year planned out already. So when people are asking us to do stuff, I'm just like, can you wait a year? Can you wait two years? Because we already kind of have everything planned out, and there's certain annual things that we already do. So uh, my contribution with Arts Can has been very small because I'm already arts canning a lot. <laughs> uh, because arts so, can. Yeah, but they're doing good. Jo- yeah. They're doing a great job. And yeah. the people involved, you know, Julie Hill and Katie Mantooth and uh, Katie Smith, all those people are great. Yeah. So that's the right kind of people to have in it. Now, you've got your own kids? I have one kid. One kid? I, um, I thought you were scaring me. This was like a surprise you, podcast. Are, like you're gonna, <laughs> well, you forgot about Billy. Here he is. I'm like, no. Yeah, no, no, no. We don't. We, okay. We're not, we're kid, not uh, that, that kind of show. quick. Um, go is, to do you, is your is your kid talented? Is he is he drawing and man? You know he. Well, how do is I, he special? I, not, he's very <laughs> special. I'm trying to you know I get I get asked that a lot. Like what kind of artist is Grayson? And you you just have to meet him because he's he's a very beautiful, polite, bizarrely wild kid. And so when he gets down and he makes artwork, it's more of like a performance piece. You know, he's drawing and coloring, and it always has something to do with monsters, which is great. Because <laughs> when I was a kid, that's all I drew was monsters and uh, horror movie things. Because uh, I tell this, you know, I was talking earlier about how limited the visual things were that you could look at. My favorite thing to do as a kid was this is when you would rent VHS tapes. You'd go to a video store. And a video store, that was like a big deal for us because uh, – uh, you know, that's what you did on the weekend. And if you rented a movie, you had it for two days, you would watch that movie 10 or 12 times. Mm-hmm. But the best part was walking into the video store and especially the horror movie section, and you'd go down and what they would have were all the box covers of all the movies. And they would be laid out in like rolls, kind of like cans at a you know, supermarket or even like a museum, like one image after another. And the horror movie box covers were terrifying, but they were all... Usually illustrations, they were like paintings that some illustrator did, and they were scary, and they were meant to like grab you to rent this movie because uh, the movies in the horror sections in the 80s, I don't know if you guys are a fan of like 80s horror movies. I mean, uh, some of them are so terrible. and I mean, it, it, it's amazing like that they could make those movies now. I mean, just because if you let some of those movies out in today's world, one, they would never get released. But I mean, it's so crazy how much bizarre content and like how scary these things were. So the box cover is there to attract you to buy it because you never saw the preview because usually they couldn't show any kind of preview right. uh, on any other kind of movie because it was just so terrifying, uh, 
terrifying in many ways. But for me, it was like going to an art show. You know, I would sit there and just look at the box covers. And I was like, oh, man, this is fantastic. So I grew up drawing monsters. Now, Grayson doesn't see any of that, but every cartoon and show that he likes has to deal with monsters. Mm. But he likes good monsters, not bad monsters. That's what he always tells me. That's good. But when he draws, he is telling a story the whole time he's drawing, which is something that I didn't do. So he's drawing and he's coloring, and in a really low, scary voice, he's like, oh, and then the monster's coming, then the monster's coming. And he's narrating this whole story. And then I'll kind of walk up and I'm like, what are you talking about? And he'll look up and go, don't ask me that. And then he'll look right back (laughs) down and go into it. So... Uh, he does a he does a little bit. It's kind of too early to tell with that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, he's in touch with his creative side. He, he That's is, what's important. Yeah, and he's a funny storyteller because it, it seems very linear, and then he throws one part at the end that seems like it's part of another story, <laughs> and then and then the story's over, and he nods and he just walks off. And so I'm always kind of left guessing, like, what is he talking about or what's he doing? So, yeah, he's creative. <laughs> so what what's next? You're a planner, obviously. If you got two, if you're two years in uh, ahead, like what, what's your vision? What's your vision for for uh, your role at UT Martin? Well, I mean, you know, I, I wear several different hat, hats. I teach classes. Uh, I do outreach with my student art group, and then uh, you know, to most people's surprise, like I'm still working, showing artists. You know, I do anywhere from like ten to fifteen shows a year. Uh, a lot of those group shows, but coming up, I have two solo shows. I've got one in November in San Antonio, and then I'm getting ready right after that for uh, another solo show at Freed Hardeman University. And then I'm trying to work out this show in Knoxville that's going to be a two-person show. And then in between that, I'm sending off for group shows. So that's all going on yeah. while I'm teaching, you know, a full load. And then while also we're starting, you know, to get ready, we're about to do a mural in the UC with the student art group once we get it approved. And, uh, you know, we're, we're in the part right now where we're trying to set up what service and outreach we're going to do with different schools with uh, sending our art educators there. So, uh, I mean, that's it's like full time, like all the time. So now I think you had a question for me about Discovery. Park. OK, OK. So I want to I want to hear about there's a couple of rumors about Discovery Park and it's okay. all about the beginning. And so some of this might sound like conspiracy okay. theory stuff. I, I know that I, know I the love facts. this stuff. Okay. And okay, so I'm going to start off with I'm a little disappointed if this one is true because okay. it's not out in front of me. I was told that when Discovery Park was in the business of, and this is before you maybe, acquiring stuff mm-hmm. for the place, mm-hmm. that one of the things that they bought was this large hoard, the last hoard of the real foot country hams that had been stowed away and that these, these were being hit somewhere on this ground here and being cured. So, like, you know, a country ham, you're like, okay, well, so real foot closed down late 80s, early 90s. So this is like 20 or 30 years. But you can cure a ham for a long time. Like, I mean, 20 or 30 years, I mean, it's not bad. Usually people won't wait that long, but that can happen. Right. And that if you did this podcast, one of the perks of getting to do this podcast <laughs> was that they would serve you one of these, like, immaculate pieces of real foot country ham. And I'm here, and there's no ham. What about any of the bologna? Because I'd settle for um, that. If there's nothing, not. as far as I know, I've smelled nothing. I, now there, Man, there is some. Out, now there are there are well, cabins. <laughs> yeah. What do you know? The real story. Do you know about real foot the plant? The plant they're tearing it down now. Do you know about the real now, foot I plant? I did hear that yeah. that they were thinking about at one time uh, erecting the tower here. Yeah. 
that that's the farthest that well, I here's know. why. Like I thought, there's no way this is true. But then I looked at the podcast when you sent me last night. Just going, well, let's see what people are talking about. Yeah. And it had real foot right on the podcast thing. And I'm like, it's just just the real street forward. Or, too. or are they right. telling me that there will yeah. be ham tomorrow? Yeah. No, there is no but ham. There's no ham. But that is a great idea. Man, a real foot forward uh, branded ham. Is coming up next. I drove here for nothing. Okay. I was really yeah, I'm sorry. To that. If I had known that, I would have had you some ham. Okay. Well, we'll get you some. Now we do have uh, Discovery Park wine in the in our future because we have a vineyard. Was that made from the pond water? <laughs> it's made. <laughs> no, it's actually made from the grapes. Well, this is the reason I was so excited too. Like, I mean, you guys do like a bourbon night, so you have these great events that I, I never get to go to because there's always something else scheduled. Although Carly's. Always keeps Carly's always telling me, you know, this is when we're doing this. This is the thing you would mm-hmm. like, and it just hasn't lined up yet. But cured ham goes great with bourbonite. So I thought maybe I was like, if I gave enough too, maybe there's like a donating section. Like I need to be in the top tier here, and that's when the ham comes out with this special bourbon tasting night. But you're telling me there's no ham. Like you're being dead serious. None. I'm, I'm dead serious. Man, um, have you heard about this? I mean, this was the best ham ever. I've never heard of this. You've have never you? heard of the real foot the hams they did. I did ham? not. Now, oh, now what's gosh. the what there? But there is a there Ooh. is a ham legendary in Haywood County. There's uh, trips country ham. Yeah, and in Martin we had Martin ham. There was oh, a ham place, Martin. Hams. I remember that. You remember that? Yeah, I remember. Yeah, that. I actually was just at auction. I collect all kinds of stuff, so I've got the big sign that went on the Martin ham building. It was, it's fantastic. Ever. I had no idea. There's yeah. a theme going here. Yeah. I started collecting Martin-based stuff uh, for the for the fact that if we ever do have a Martin Historical Museum, I have all this Martin historical stuff, which I like finding anyway because I do that a lot in the summer as a stress reliever. But that was one of the things I got. But I was driving over here. I mean, real foot hams are like legendary like in the fact that it's like how people talk about Pappy Van Winkle, if you know what that is. So mm-hmm. like we were like, man, there's got to be one. Real foot ham left, well, and I, I thought today was a day, but it's not. I'm gonna find. I'm gonna find out. I think we we need to have. Be it careful. I mean, because there there are some. If you start asking the wrong yeah, questions I don't over ask here, ask the wrong people. Yeah, you get in trouble. Yeah. So, but it would be a good thing to put on display. Yeah. Well, and it would smell. It would have a smell. So it'd be interactive. Well, you just cut the outside layer that's terrible off, yeah, and you're, there you you're go. in the good stuff with there all. You okay, go. just is that the only question? I'm ready for more. Well, man, I mean, that might be part of it. I don't, I don't know. We might have just well, started a controversy. Well, somebody's going to know. Can we give out a personal phone number if you have any information? That, that, <laughs> you could email info at discoveryparkofamerica.com if you have uh, a clue about the real foot ham. I think that's just the only one that I had to know about because okay. there's some other ones, but they're, they're not. They don't really make sense or probably well, not Email me. But the email ham one is pretty important. If you think of, if you think of more, I, I will, me. definitely, yeah. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for coming and doing sure. our podcast. Yeah. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. And now, with a little discovery for all of us, is Andrew Gibson, who's sharing a bit of the behind the scenes of Discovery Park of America. Thank you, Scott. I am Andrew Gibson with the Education Department here at Discovery Park of America. And today I am with Russell Orr, our in-house scientist, who will be sharing a story that I'm sure you all will find as fascinating as I did when I first heard it. Uh, so, Russell, how are you doing today? Um, much better than I was weeks ago, you know, considering that, you know, I was in a wheelchair then. Yeah. But now things are great. Good. Glad to hear it. Uh, so what are we going to learn about today? Uh, we're going to learn about why when you go into the train at Discovery Park, you'll find a little box to store torpedoes. All right. So I'm, I'm, you, you've got me. Hook, line, sinker. Okay. 
Well, uh, you know, we, we actually have naval torpedoes, the weapon in our military gallery, you know, designed to damage and sink ships. Um, we, uh, but uh, a torpedo that you'd find on a train is something very different. You see, in the Civil War, uh, the, the, the idea of a concealed explosive was referred to as a, tor- a torpedo. Uh, have you ever heard of Admiral Farragut? I have not. Well, he was, I believe, the first admiral. I've heard from one place that, um, like, the word, the rank of admiral was invented for him because he was so, he he's the one, have you ever heard, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead? I have. Okay. He wasn't talking about self-propelled weapons like we would talk about. He was talking about concealed explosives. Uh, in modern parlance, we'd probably call them naval mines. Uh, they rigged a bunch of explosive charges in, uh, in the bay where they were fighting, and if a ship got too close, it could be uh, sunk by this torpedo. Well, uh, torpedoes were also used against trains. Uh, in the Civil War, uh, trains were weapons in their own right. They had armor on them. They'd carry guns, men, uh, men, supplies. They were incredibly important. And uh, you would destroy your enemy's trains if you possibly could. Uh, one way to do this, since they, again, were armored, is you'd pile a whole bunch of explosives or gunpowder underneath the train track uh, and either wait until one came by and detonate them yourself, or you'd rig it up so that the pressure of the train, you know, the weight bearing down, would uh, detonate this with, uh, of course, terrifying results. Um well, we have a box in the caboose, and people can see it if they come to Discovery Park of America that said, that says, torpedoes here. You know, it's the torpedo box on the caboose. Uh, and a torpedo, uh, if you're talking about a railway, is a device that a train runs over and that device explodes. Uh, this device isn't um, to uh, damage the train in any way. In fact, it's meant to protect it because let, let's pretend for a moment that you're an engineer of a train, right? Okay, you're, you're on a train. Trains are very loud. Do you think it's going to be easy for you to hear something? I do not. Okay, so, and let's, the, the, the engine might even be soundproofed on top of that, so you'll have a very difficult time. Uh, if there are poor lighting conditions or, or we need you to stop now, one thing to do is to put a torpedo on the train track. It's fastened there with a metal clamp, and when you run over that torpedo in your imaginary train. It doesn't matter how loud that train is or how soundproof your uh, engine compartment is, you're going to hear that 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 noise. And that means that you need to stop immediately. There's some sort of emergency on the tracks. Uh, so the idea of a torpedo as a weapon, that, that didn't happen until 1866. But um, they don't call them uh, uh, railway torpedoes uh, beyond the United States. That's, that's our thing because a torpedo was something that you'd hide on the train track to explode as the train goes under it. And uh, for quite a while after the Civil War ended, you'd still have torpedoes that the train would set off as it went, went over it and the way it caused it. But these were for benevolent purposes instead of uh, weapons of war. So my question, whose job was it to fix the damaged track after the explosion. Well, uh, keep in mind, uh, it's a big steel rail, so it can it can withstand quite a bit. They'd be about the size of uh, I, I don't know uh, your your thumb, and they're not not really that big. You just fasten it over there, and it's like imagine a really 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 loud firecracker. 
All right. Well, I know, uh, much like myself, a lot of our listeners have discovered something new today. Uh, one little fact before we go, like Russell said, you can come to Discovery Park, uh, see the trains we have on display here, the caboose. You can come pull the train whistle that we all love to hear here at the park. And see the torpedo. And see the torpedo box. Uh, thank you all for listening to Real Foot Forward, a West Tennessee podcast, and we hope to see you here at Discovery Park real soon. Thank you for listening to Real Foot Forward. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you may be listening. Plan your own adventure to see beyond at Discovery Park of America by visiting discoveryparkofamerica.com. Be sure to also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for the latest updates.